Hi, everybody, and welcome. Uh, it's a conversation with Kara Swisher, Silicon Valley's most feared journalist. I'm Diane Fenner for the New York City Bar Association. We're celebrating our 150th year working for social justice. And every month we present a different guest speaker. And you can find all of our programs listed on the City Bar Association's website, nycbar.org. Today we're bringing you two journalists uh, talking about the internet, social media, big tech, all of the social issues created by the digital revolution. Our guest speaker is Kara Swisher, writer and podcaster for the New York Times, editor at large at New York Media, co-host of the Pivot podcast, author of two books, and uh, the person that Newsweek has dubbed Silicon Valley's most feared journalist. Um, we also are bringing you a noted journalist as your moderator. She is Adrienne Jeffries. She has significant ties to the Bar Association. Both of her parents are lawyers. Um, and we've been able to recruit her. Um, she's worked at the Markup, founding editor at The Outline, former editor of Motherboard, reporter for Verge, New York Observer, Virginian Pilot, New York Times, Business Week, and the Netflix documentary series, Broken. And I give you Adrian Jeffries. Thank you so much for that introduction. And Kara, thank you so much for being here. Um, so Diane introduced Kara as Silicon Valley's most feared journalist. This is her reputation. She's fierce, she's aggressive, and yet everyone likes her. <laughs> um, you may not recognize her at first because she's usually wearing trademark aviator sunglasses, but I have followed, there they are, I've followed and looked up to Kara my whole career, and I'm excited for her to be here. Um, I have questions. We're actually uh, taking questions in Q&A, and we have some great questions already, some very specific questions, and I think people are really engaged um, with Kara's work, so I may have to toss out some of my questions and just go with these, but why don't we just start, Kara? Um, so right now you're doing, I believe, a podcast with the New York Times, a podcast with Vox Media, and you have your column for the New York Times. How yeah. did you How did you end up here in this position? Well, you know, I started off as a thank you, Adrian. I'm a huge fan of yours, also. Um, and uh, I, I, the, the, it's so funny when people say feared. I don't think I'm feared at all, but whatever. <laughs> no, well, I think you are. Well, I guess, but they should be fearful for saying stupid things that's really good. I just to get them to say stupid things it's not that's not a it's there most of these companies have doing the thing as you've reported and everyone's reported have, have doing a lot of these things themselves and so just pointing them out doesn't make you fearful it makes you honest and doing your job essentially but um how did I get here um I started off as a uh I wanted to I think people know this I wanted to be in the military and I wanted to probably be in military intelligence doing analysis. I was at the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown when I, 109 years ago. Um, and I, I couldn't go in the military because I was gay. Um, and at the time, this was even pre Don't Ask, Don't Tell, which, uh, which I would, I would have told, I would have asked, <laughs> you know, it was just kind of silly, but you really couldn't when I was, when I was that age. And so I didn't really want to lie and hide and stuff like that. So it was not really open to me. And um, you know, we, a lot of people at foreign service will go into the CIA, but I would have done analysis. Essentially, I would have done what I do as a reporter, you know, sort of like, um, uh, you know, I was on Homeland and, but not, 
that kind of thing, that kind of job, which was analysis. So um, I went into journalism uh, in college and then I started working for the Washington Post when I was in college as a stringer. Um, and so I love the Washington Post. It was our hometown, my hometown, I was at Georgetown, the hometown newspaper essentially. And just, it went from there. I went to Columbia and, and stuff like that. I'm not gonna go into my whole career, but I started writing for newspapers. And so I was a beat reporter at the New York Times, I mean, excuse me, at the Washington Post. Um, and I covered all kinds of things. And eventually I started covering AOL in the early internet. And I started covering the legislation that created the internet with Al Gore and, and different things like that. And so I was sort of there at the dawn of the internet age and the dawn of all these digital uh, beyond computers, because there was already computers and there was already Microsoft and things like that. But this was the internet, which was a different and, and big leap for computing. And so I was there at the beginning, that's all, and as a beat reporter. And so I ended up meeting everybody uh, in, the, in the area um, and moved on to the Wall Street Journal uh, because they had decided it was something, it was gonna be something through Walt Mossberg, who was my longtime partner. And then it went off from there and I did beat reporting, I did columns and things like that. And then a couple of years ago, Walt and I started, many years ago, we started All Things D because we were entrepreneurial and then uh, moved on to create Recode, uh, another entrepreneurial uh, new news organization. And then, uh, and then uh, sold that to Vox and started uh, figuring out what I wanted to do more. And I got, I got interested about seven years ago in podcasts, um, just the way I had been interested in the internet before other people and blogs before other people did. And so I started doing those, just me and an intern. That was it, you know, essentially. And so I started doing interviews that I had already been doing. And, uh, and that's how I got, the Times came to me and really wanted a, a premier interview show. And I had, you know, there's not that many people who have done that. And it was just me really. Um, so I, I, I started by doing a column because I thought it was an interesting place to, because I didn't love their technology reporting in the column space. Um, I, you know, it was interesting because they're like, you know, we want to improve our technology column, you know, in our, our op-ed section, I go, you mean like have it at all or do it in a decent way? You know, I mean, it was, so it wasn't really the job interview that they expected because I sort of uh, slagged them during the job interview, but they hadn't had anybody. And, and, I, and I'm not an actual employee of the New York Times, um, but I write the column and I also do the, the Sway uh, podcast, which we launched last year. Uh, and then I had continued to do a podcast I was doing for Vox Media with Scott Galloway, um, and that's called Pivot. And that just discusses the issues of the day. It's a much more lively discussion oriented one. Uh, we bring in guests, but it's more, it's like a wrestling match, essentially. He and I tend to disagree on a lot of topics. So I do that. And then I do events and stuff for um, Vox right now, but we'll see. We're, we're, I have lots of ideas and stuff and I'm working on some books. I'm curious, since you started out covering AOL and that was the big tech giant, internet giant at the time, what is, how is it different covering the internet industry back then versus covering it now and the types of companies that you find yourself covering and the types of problems that you see? Well, it's interesting because there's not a new, you know, there's, it's, I, forget who, I forget who it was, there's nothing new under the sun, you know, it's an old uh, saying. Um, I think a lot of it, if you look at AOL and you look at the early internet, a lot of the ideas are very similar to what's happening now. It's just new iterations of them. You know, everyone's losing their minds over Clubhouse, but it's been around. The idea has been around. It's just, it's just an iteration of a new idea um, that has already happened and a better version of it. And so, um, or, or, or Substack, everyone's like Substack. I'm like WordPress, LiveJournal, you know what I mean? That, I, so I've been around the whole time. So when they come up with these new ideas, I'm sort of like, actually it's a, what's interesting about this new version of it is it's a, it's a good way to monetize through subscription. Now subscription isn't new. And so 
Uh, I think a lot of, if you go to companies like AOL and the very early internet companies, a lot of them had the kernels of the ideas of what was going to happen. And they just didn't have, certain things weren't in place. And so the difference in covering them is when I originally started covering these people, they didn't have money. You know, Jeff Bezos had no money, if you can believe that, or he was not rich and he had a couple of employees or uh, Larry and Sergey were in a garage or Mark Andreessen was a college student, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, so I met them when they were beginning. Um, now they're incredibly wealthy. They're incredibly, like obscenely wealthy almost in some cases um, and, and powerful and they run companies that have huge impact. And so, uh, you know, that, that has changed the equation for how they started. So watching people, it's sort of like watching Thomas Edison or watching the people who started car companies, Henry Ford. Uh, so it's different in that they're now extraordinarily powerful. Um, and many of them have not progressed as human beings. And so that's the problem is they have all this enormous power in their hands and still haven't figured out all the, all the legal implications the social implications and everything else. And so it's kind of interesting to watch people who in, on that journey that they've had and, and, the, and the potentials of danger because of that, because of the enormous wealth and enormous power they've gained in a very small amount of time, even though it's maybe 30 years, 20 years, essentially. So we're getting some good questions in the Q&A, and I think one of them is, is a good one to bring in now. Um, to the attendees, you can send questions to Q&A, and I will ask them throughout the program. So one audience member asks, what are specific tactics and processes to rebuild trust in objective journalism, parentheses, and math and science? at a time when people f seem to feel entitled to their own facts. Here's the thing I think about this a lot because one of the things that's, that you, that you, we talk about this sort of, we're in a post-fact society, I guess. Um, we thought we were in a post-racial society, actually we're in a post-fact society. The fact of the matter is people did not believe these things before. It's just that they articulate them now or they have places to articulate them. And so one of the things, like you don't think there were conspiracy theories before, there were dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens. They just didn't have a place of articulation and then amplification. You, you think people were highly educated about science and math, M many, many people across the country, they were not, you just didn't hear from them. And you, they didn't have a place to trade all kinds of different non-theories or opinions. Um, and so I think what's happened is that, that it, it's not that this is not, occurred, it's been able to be weaponized and amplified in ways using these tools that never were available before, or people just didn't get heard. Like you had these, you had a certain media uh, ecosystem that was pretty much based on the East Coast, very much based in New York, uh, very much based around a couple, you know, like two dozen white men, like of a certain age kind of thing of a certain class. And so now you have an ability for all kinds of people to bring their voices in. And so what's happening is you're hearing their voices when you couldn't before. Um, and and in, in the ability to hear their voices, uh, it gets amplified even more. And so that is the difficulty of this is that now we are, we were sort of on a, on a, on a certain information diet before and not everybody participated in it. They just ignored it pretty much. And now we're on this incredibly, just the way you think about obesity or nutrition, we're on a poor information diet and everyone's getting, you know, whether you can choose to eat apples and oranges, or you can choose to eat, you know, Doritos and 
and whatever crap that you want to shovel into your mouth. And so I think that's really what's happened is that the availability of information and the, 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 how, how quick it is to use it combined with the addiction, addictive elements of all these, these devices, combined with the, the continued isolation of people um, in, in general and the, 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 the collapse of institutions like churches and community groups and, and even the workplace, you know, the, the things that used to hold people together in an analog fashion, everybody's getting from digital. And so uh, I don't think it's something, I think it's humanity sort of brought to a new level using these tools. And so getting people back is going to be incredibly difficult um, because uh, one, because people can be siloed into their own things. The second is because this information is is so well hidden and so well delivered uh, that it can, it can, it can mimic actual news. Um, I think the level of media literacy is so low in this country, at least in this country, uh, that it's hard to know what you're, what you're hearing. And then people who are malevolent uh, are, are able to manipulate these things really easily. And so um, it's no accident. You know, you, you watch the, the, the sort of straight line and between what happened at the Capitol and and the stuff that had come before it, it was a very straight line of people with a very poor information diet having financial problems. There was a really interesting story about that. A lot of the people who attacked had really severe financial problems who had been fed a lot of disinformation and it resulted in a physical movement towards the Capitol to express that rage. Now, I have no sympathy for them, but I, you do have some empathy for the idea of how it happened that way and how people got there. Just the way you'd have empathy for people who have a bad have have you know bad nutritional habits because of all kinds of reasons um, or bad uh, not enough education because of all kinds of reasons and where they end up um, can be kind of predicted and so I'm not sure what we do a couple things media literacy try to push more media literacy um, start to put some regulations on these companies in terms of the liability they have towards what they're doing just the way you would. Uh, someone who peddles opiates or cigarettes or sugar or things like that and make them start to pay the price of what happens when they allow their platforms to be tra used to traffic bad information, essentially. That's a good segue to another question from an audience member. In what specific ways do you advocate a stronger governmental regulation and control of the internet? It depends on what control you're talking about, right? I think control around data and privacy is really important because there's two ways to hit these companies. One is to uh, to do it in a way that quashes innovation, which you don't want to do. One of some of the some of the proposals are really problematic in in that regard. But there's a couple of ways you can hit them. One is around data and privacy and the business plan of these companies, right? What start to aim at what their business plan is. And so when they're able to use, use data and, you, and, and take advantage of people's privacy without any kind of governmental intervention, that's something a perfect place for government to intervene, right? To protect customers. They do it in all kinds of other industries, um, you know, whether it's seatbelts, there's all kinds of ways that happens. And so that's a really great way to do it because one of the problems we're gonna have is there is no way that the government will ever become a speech police at all. There's, there's it's the first amendment, we have it. It says it's very clear. It's first, uh, and so people are not. Government is never going to be someone is that's going to be allowed. As in other countries, they certainly can. They don't have the First Amendment, but and and they do that. There's a lot, all kinds of things that these platforms can't do, and like in Germany, they can't have Nazi symbolism, etc. 
in this country, that's not going to happen. And so we have to sort of abandon that idea of the government as a speech police in any way because it's not going to happen. But there are other ways, the data, the use of data, the use of privacy, um, the um, the, the, the antitrust implications that, that there's not enough of these companies. So there's not enough voices to create a, an atmosphere uh, where there's not just one or two companies in one sector. Um, that's another way to do that. M more competition, more, more ability for people to make choices. Um, and, 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 and then there's ways of creating just regular regulations in terms of how they conduct themselves and, and how they make decisions um, can be legislated. It just can't be around the speech elements of it. Um, and then there's, you know, just basically public shaming, media looking at it, uh, citizens getting involved and being objecting and making them be better corporate citizens. That's another pressure point. Um, but I think the idea that suddenly the government's going to come in and figure this out, especially around the speech elements, is just never going to happen. And it shouldn't happen either. I think it's interesting to see what kind of questions we're getting, and it's it's uh, making me feel more vindicated in uh, the section of questions that I had written for you about the tech lash. Uh -huh. um, so I want to talk about that a little bit. So it feels like these big tech companies, specifically Apple, Amazon, Alphabet, or Google, and Facebook, mm -hmm. are getting unprecedented scrutiny right now. And I've had friends ask me, like, why why is this happening now? What happened? It's like a, a switch flipped and all of a sudden these companies became targets. Why do you think that's happening now? Trump. Trump. You know, the impact of President Trump, um, former President Trump. Um, I think that uh, he, you know, people have all kinds of theories on, on what was going on. But I think one of the things is we have a long history in this country of not trusting largeness, right? Large, whether it's whether it's uh, telcos or oil companies or train companies or whatever. And so one, a couple of things, not just Trump, is wealth, the amount of wealth that's created. If you look at the top five companies in the world, if you remove Saudi Aramco, it's all tech companies. The top 10 rich people in the world, Warren Buffett doesn't even rate anymore. He's down low. You know what I mean? Like that kind of thing. So the top richest people in the world, and and especially in the pandemic, they've gotten richer by the factor of an enormous amount of money, uh, which is amazing how well they've done in the pandemic. So the enormous concentration of wealth and a concentration of power, which is something that we are, whatever the industry is, we recognize in this country as being a problem or have in the past. Um, so that's one reason. The other thing is the the obvious um, escalation of hate speech and, and misinformation during the Trump administration and the uses of these platforms for, for nefarious things, you know, nefarious means to promote lies, to cause doubt in the election and things like that in plain sight. It's not even, you know, they do a lot of things not in plain sight, but in plain sight. And so I think a lot of people began to put together this idea of the most powerful companies uninhibited by any legal restrictions pretty much and the legal restrict the legal the laws that are surrounding them are actually advantageous to them and protect them um uh, combined with with um with the, the trump administration sort of abusing and gaming them starting off with alex jones starting off with all kinds of littler players and then trump is sort of the king of that um i think sort of combined where people started to recognize that these companies had enormous almost quasi-governmental power and we're affecting the body politic. And so I think that's, you know, or, and this idea that they become the public squares without any public accountability. And I think that's really where, um, where it all came together, that it was sort of the natural uh, place where this would all come together. But it has to do with both wealth and 
influence and and result result and i think the capital attack was the the end result of all that so it's basically the four companies that are getting the most heat are the four most valuable companies and most valuable public companies um with one exception of a company that seems to have escaped this scrutiny pretty much altogether, which is Microsoft. I and do. I wonder why you think that is. Well, they've been through the paces, right? They, they certainly had, had had that issue. It's interesting because they are, I just did an interview with Brad Smith, who's the president of Microsoft, and he was the one that talked them down from the ledge of sort of continuing to fight with the government. Um, you know, they've got issues too, by the way. Microsoft's got all kinds. There's still issues around software and things like that. But I think they have learned to cooperate with governments because they had been through the antitrust uh, ringer. Now, Microsoft was never broken up, by the way. Everyone was like, oh, they were a monopoly. I'm like, they never were broken up. Things, And there were a lot of the stuff that was decided was pulled back on them. But what it did do is it one, it slowed down the company from its incessant aggression. And it got the company to think more smarter about how to deal with government and how to subject itself to regulation in a way that's good for both Microsoft and and the society. And so they also happen to, they happen to be, most of their businesses are in areas that are actually competitive, like cloud. There's, there's a lot of competition in the cloud space. Um, and so they're not really um, in areas that, that don't have competition. And so that's, I think, one of the reasons. Um, the other was that when you think about it, one of the things that I have a hard time with a lot of people doing all this is they use this term big tech, right? Oh, big tech is bad. There's no such thing as big tech. There are big tech companies and each of them has a particular problem. It, in Apple's case, it's less um, dire, I would say. The app store is a problem. There's only two app stores and really one for each, whatever brand you decide to pick, whatever world you decide to live in. And so there's all kinds of issues about their power over third-party developers and their ability to um, to decide on any rules they want. That could be solved through all kinds of consent degrees, all kinds of agreements, all kinds of negotiations with third-party developers. Not the most difficult thing in the world to deal with Apple. Like that requires a certain amount of sophisticated negotiation that would probably, and in, including self-regulation. Like we're not gonna charge 30%. We're gonna be transparent. We're gonna, you know, there's all kinds of things they could do. And then you get to something like Google on the other end, which is now facing antitrust scrutiny from the federal government and from states. Um, and they, their market share is in, in this one critically important area is so massive that it's really hard to deny that something has to happen here. Same thing with Facebook and them and online advertising. Those are more like, oh, there's got to be an antitrust solution here or maybe a regulatory solution around um, uh, digital advertising and, and privacy, uh, data privacy. Um, and so each of these companies faces a different problem. And Amazon, you have several different problems. You have employment problems, you know, unionization, things like that. And then at the same, all those issues that are happening, you've got issues of selling, uh, you know, fraud on the marketplace. That's something you deal with through law, you know, legal action and things like that. And then you have this marketplace problem where they have, they own the marketplace and they sell on the marketplace. And so data leaks could pot and Jeff Bezos talked about this in his testimony. Um, and so you have that problem, someone owning the market and also selling on the market. And that's another problem that can be addressed all kinds of ways through the FTC or other, other agencies. And so, and then, then the last one is you have tax issues. Like what should some of these companies be taxed in certain ways? That's another tool we can use to, 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 to control them. And the last part is the government 
really investing in innovation and investing in innovation all across the country so that there will be competitors uh, to these companies and seeing, um, not allowing them to buy things so they own the entire market or adjacent markets. And so there, nothing ever bubbles up uh, to be their own, to be a size like that and so to, to solidify their power in the place where they are. And so there's all kinds of tools. I just, it's, 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 it's incredibly complex. And I think people tend to try to boil it down to let's get big tech, which is, which one kind of thing. It, it's interesting. You mentioned um, the unions, mm -hmm. the unionization at Amazon. So both Amazon and Google workers have announced unions. I wonder if that is a new point of pressure for these companies to make changes. We have public scrutiny, we have mm -hmm. government talking about regulation, but now we also have these workers doing some activism. Yeah. And I wonder, yeah, go ahead. You know, I think it's gonna be very difficult. Like, first of all, these workers are different. They're not the same. It's not like you have workers who work in a you know, car manufacturing. They all do the same thing or have the same, or they're on the same level. Here you have contractors who make stuff in the kitchen and you have very high level, uh, high pay, highly, not high level, highly paid engineers. And so their, their interests are not aligned. Like what is, what is a Google worker precisely? What is a gig worker? And so that's gonna be one of the big issues is that the, these, these unions are not easily belonging in the same place, these people, and they don't have the same incentives. It's gonna make it very difficult for unions. The other thing is they tend to try, I and mean, they're obviously being super aggressive in trying to prevent it. That's another thing they're doing. Um, and, and one of the problems is we've created a whole new class of workers now that we have to, I think, in many ways, we have to really rethink what a worker is, right? And it's a, it's a discussion I've had with lots of politicians is that we, we are kind of in this mindset of what an employee is from 30 years ago to what an employee is today, whether it's a gig worker who works for Uber or, um, or a contract worker for Google or, or someone who works in an Amazon warehouse. What is, there, what is an employee anymore and how should we be treating employees? Um, should there be a set of, of healthcare and other benefits and rights that go along with the worker or should it be company by company. And I think the difficulty is that these companies are so complex in the kinds of workers they have, that's gonna be hard for traditional, and then what is a union? That's the other thing is, I mean, the idea of a traditional union is not gonna work here. Um, and so how can you reform the union movement to, to be able to embrace a lot of these changes and at the same time work with some of these companies in order to figure out what the role of the worker is in them. Um, I think the whole, uh, what happened in California around Proposition 22 was problematic. You know, it's just, there's no good answers to how to deal with this. And a lot of it lies with a national healthcare system that is, that is not, doesn't devastate people, a way to protect people. I mean, this pandemic, um, you know, one of the things I was talking to the uh, president of a big uh, liberal arts college yesterday for one of my podcasts and, um, they were talking about COVID learnings, right? What do we learn from COVID? And you can get positive things out of it. And so in the worker space, for example, what is an essential worker? What rights do they have? How are they protected from a healthcare point of view? It's all been laid bare through this, um, through the pandemic. And one of the things that would be nice is to start to think of how do we, what is the union movement going forward with companies that aren't naturally unionized? Right, they're not; they don't fit in the in the old sense of what a union is. And so, I think the companies are in really good uh, 
position because they can push it back very easily. And the ability to organize is going to be much harder for the people in those unions, even if they follow them around and do all the stupid stuff they're doing. Um, it's still, even if they didn't do that, it's going to be difficult to unionize these, these companies easily. Definitely an uphill battle there. Um, there have been a couple questions about a very current event. Curious if Kara is following the Clubhouse privacy story, and if so, what is your take? You're kidding. They're taking your privacy. We're surprised. It's all. <laughs> I mean, honestly, are you surprised? It's the same people who made Facebook. The same. You know, you think these are fresh new people. It's the same investors who are in all these companies, uh, whether it's Uber or I, I. I wanted to do like a crosshatch of the investors in Clubhouse with all the other companies. They're all the same people. They're all you know, you know, with Mark Andreessen at the center, essentially. Um, and, you know, here's the thing, none of these companies are here to help you. They're here to help themselves. They're here to help their whatever business scheme they happen to have. And I think one of the things that I like to focus in on is that, you know, people are like, oh, we like Google Maps. We like the dating service. Yay, yay, we get to date. Yay, we get to shop online. You're all cheap dates to these companies. You give them all your, pro all your information. You give them all, all your data. You give them all your activity. You pay for this stuff for, for some of it, and in other cases, uh, you get very little in return. And so we we tend to cheap dates them. They get all the valuable stuff and then sell it, and then you know they're the billionaires essentially, and they have all the information. And you get an app, or you get a, a map, or you get a date a date, which is great. I'm, I don't begrudge anybody a date, but um, but so with Clubhouse, it's the same thing. They're they're not going to the privacy stuff is not built into these things. And when you go on these things, you have to understand that they, it's their room, they can do whatever they want in their room, unless it's explicit that they're not doing it. And so there's two elements of privacy there is should the stuff on it be private, even though it's kind of a quasi public space, um, maybe it should. Um, and, you know, this whole journalist tech bro fight, it's exhaust. I don't, I haven't engaged in it in any way, because it's just ridiculous, you know, what's happening there, they want to create their own private spaces they can do that it's fine you know i don't look into people's bedrooms through their curtains either like it doesn't whatever they want to do in that regard but the stuff they're collecting from you from your phones and and your contacts and things you say they should be much more explicit about what they're doing in those things but just like facebook just like all of them they don't do it and that's not their that's not their natural thing and again here's a piece of legislation why is everything opt-in um why is everything opt out in Silicon Valley versus opt in? I mean, just a simple law that everything has to be like what Apple's doing right now with Facebook, this, this new thing, that's an existential um, threat to Facebook. It is. The Can idea you explain what the new thing that Apple is they're doing? Putting, they're, they're, it's essentially requiring people when they have an app to explain what data they're taking and whether they, you have to opt into it rather than opt out of it. Right now, mm -hmm. most apps you like Clubhouse and others, you opt out of things, even if, and even there, it's not clear that you can opt out of things. Um, and so whatever they're, whatever data collection doing, whatever privacy things they're doing, you opt out of it and nobody does. Like it's nobody opts out of anything. And so what Apple is doing is when you get, uh, I, I, it hasn't been seen yet the, uh, what they're doing, but what essentially what they're doing is when you have the Facebook app, it's going to say, do you know what Facebook is doing here? Let us tell you what they're doing. Would you like not to have that? Would you like us to block that? And, and most people might go, 
Yes, I absolutely would. That would be great. And so it's really problematic for, you know, and that's why Mark Zuckerberg loses his ever love in mind on press call, I mean, on quarterly calls, because this is at the heart, collecting of data and information without a lot of friction is what they like to do. And so, um, so that's, that's the, at the heart and Apple doesn't care because Apple is a, doesn't rely on that, doesn't have an advertising business to speak of. I mean, they used to a long time ago, but um, they, they just want to sell devices and privacy is one of their brand attributes, right? Uh, and so, uh, so they're like, sounds good to us. Like, we don't care. This is good. This looks good to us. And, uh, you know, it's a bit of a, you know, Tim Cook is always sort of sticking it to Mark Zuckerberg in lots of ways. Uh, but I do think um, that, that it's, it'll be an interesting problem because Apple has the ability to shut this stuff down really simply and use it as a, like, we're the phone that's going to keep all the shit from your stuff from going elsewhere. That's a really attractive thing for a lot of people. Um, we're gonna protect you and we're gonna let you know. And if you decide to do it, you're gonna know what you're doing when you're doing it. We're gonna force transparency on these companies. And so it's, it's gonna be an interesting fight. And now, now Facebook is trying to say that Apple has an antitrust issue around messaging and all kinds of stuff. So they're trying to latch on to other things that Apple has an issue with. Um, like having a music service and competing with Spotify and having the app store and this and that. Mm -hmm. um, so we'll see where it goes. I think it's, uh, I'm, uh, years ago, Mark Zuckerberg said Elizabeth Warren was his existential crisis. Actually, Apple is their existential crisis. So you said earlier that you thought of the big tech companies getting scrutiny right now, Apple's problems are more easily solved than the other three. Is that because of, does, how does that relate to this? Uh, privacy priority that they have. If you look at what they're saying and they're announcing, a lot of what Apple's doing is trying to front get front run this stuff. Like they know it's coming and they know they have an issue with their developers. And so because it's run by adults, they're like, we're going to, we're going to, they, you know, they're, 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 Brad Smith talked about the seven stages of antitrust grief that you're in. Eventually you get to the one where actually we're going to end up being the most valuable company in the world if we just stop fighting this. Um, I think they're aware that they have a real, their, their biggest issue right now is around third party developers on the app store and the control and the, the competition of say Apple Music with Spotify, or if they go into something else, uh, you know, their competition of having the platform and also having businesses that are growing, their, so, their software and services businesses are growing really profoundly. And so that's going to be the issue for them is the, is the dichotomy between running the platform and having other services that compete with people that are using their platform. Um, I just think it's not something, first of all, they're not going to split the app store from the phone. It's, it, that creates all kinds, a myriad of safety problems and everything else. And so I think there's, they are willing, I suspect they are more willing than other companies to start to figure out rules of the road that can be monitored, uh, that they will cooperate with, uh, and they can do just fine by doing that. They don't need to, they don't need to, if, if there is very serious data and privacy rules and Apple is doing a lot more transparency with apps that hurts face there's nothing Facebook can do about that right and Apple can certainly manage some of its problems I'm not saying there's not other problems of man you know they, all the manufacturing problems with, with stuff the issues in China there's all kinds of issues with Apple but I think I, if I had to rank stack rank them I think the Google would be on the top Facebook Amazon Apple in terms of 
how difficult it will be yeah, to difficult. regulate them. Yes, exactly. And I think I think Apple is aware of it. Is an older company does understand that this is where the wind is blowing and has positioned itself better, especially around issues about privacy and damage. You know that speech Tim gave to uh, essentially accusing Facebook of doing the riot. You know, like if not for Facebook, these people wouldn't have been storming the Capitol kind of thing. If you read that, it was pretty explicit, the, the links between, and he's not incorrect about the hate speech and where it leads, um, but that's not their business. So they can, they can slag a business that does that, so. We have an audience question that I wanna to get to about uh, Facebook's oversight board. I'm saying yeah. that so I don't forget it because I wanna ask a follow-up about that ranking you just mentioned. Yeah. Why do you have Google first, then, uh, Facebook, then Amazon, then Apple. Oh, for antitrust. I think they mm -hmm. it's very clear. They, I don't know, it's 90 some percent. They have 90% of search. It's, some, it's like, it's just a number. I mean, it's just a number. It's just pretty high. Um, and so you just have to look at that and go in traditional antitrust sense, that's really pretty much a thing. They'll argue that search is everywhere. Amazon has search, blah, blah, blah. Um, but it's kind of a tough, uh, they're, they're being very narrow about advantaging. Actually, Apple's involved in that case because of putting, making them default search on the Apple platform, you know, gives them enormous, I, I think Apple's going to do its own search service. So I think that'll, that'll be interesting. Um, and so that they're, they're being very narrow in its, its thing. I just think that's the one you're going to see move forward much quicker. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not a lawyer, but I, lawyers tell me that one is a very narrow and easier one to win in some cases than a broader, uh, a broader case. Um, I'm sorry, your question was about so next up would be, oh, so Facebook. then there's Facebook. Okay, sure. The oversight board. I called it the UN, but less effective. So <laughs> that's how I feel about it. Um, uh, and I don't think the UN is effective. So, um, uh, you know, it's, it's a solution. It's one of the solutions for them not taking responsibility for their business. Um, it's an incredibly difficult. I, I acknowledge it's an incredibly difficult problem to try to figure out how to do this, but this seems like an artisanal solution. Um, where they're going to take up only so many things. It's, it's like for, when I say 40 people making a decision, what does that sound like to you? Not a good solution. A lengthy um, process. Length, a lengthy process. That's right. Um, I think they have to, I think their businesses, they got to decide, you know, decide what they're going to do on the, I, the problem is I don't know if there's any other solution. There isn't any other solution, right? Like what is the solution? Well, Mark decides everything. That's one single person. The best solution is competition. So there's lots of platforms. That's the best solution. So that there's lots of people making lots of decisions and every like that it is the best solution is Reddit is as big as Facebook as as big as, you know, Snapchat is as big as whatever. Um, but these Reddit's things, pretty big. It is pretty big. It's not as big as none of them. I mean, they none of them. They all pale in comparison to Facebook and its impact. They just do. If you look at the numbers and and the amount, they're they're big, but they're not big. They're they're little. They're little actually. And and the Reddit CEO who I just interviewed would say this. Um, Twitter's little. Twitter has an outsized uh, influence on journalists like you and I, but and others, you know, and politicians. But it's little. It's a little business. Um, and uh, if you look at the numbers, I, by every measure, it's little. So, so the question is, um, how do you really solve this problem that's almost unsolvable, right? That's, it's, it's really, it's an unsolvable situation. You can't have, you can't have Mark making all the decisions. The board is too slow. It's, 
you know, they could change their algorithms. They could decide that this is not the way they want to make money, that the way they can do it. And they did that before the election. They moved around their algorithms quite a bit and everything calmed down rather quickly, right? They can decide they're a civic company as well as a, as a profit-making company. They could decide that and, and, and make uh, changes that way. Um, I, I'm not sure there's a particularly good solution I, that I have been able to think of. Do you have one, Adrian? I don't know. <laughs> I don't have one. Uh, I think competition is a is a good oh. answer and regulation around uh, c- collection of data. And live um, in the worst cases, that's the where that's where mm-hmm. I really think has not been taken advantage of because of tech, Section two hundred and thirty, which you, you and I talked about previously. Um, well, there's, let's talk there's about it again. Liability that works really well here. There's, mm-hmm. you know, being sued really does clean you up a lot. Like if they had the idea that they were going to be sued, uh, they make changes. This happened in Germany when the Germans were going to put them in jail. So were the they criminal criminally? Um, I think in certain cases the response, like what happened in Myanmar, what's their responsibility around what happened there? Like they're they're not able to be sued at all, and so there's no ability to figure out what they could possibly be sued for. There should be lawsuits around this capital attack, given how uh, they organized and allowed you know, sedition to go on on the site. Like, what is the liability around that? But you never are going to go there because of Section 230. And so, so let's zoom out just a little bit. And since we're talking to lawyers, but I'm not sure they know Section 230 necessarily. Oh. So um, can you just explain Section 230? It, it's the Communications Decency it, Act. In the Communications, which most of which was declared unconstitutional, by the way, um, the Communications Decency Act. But this is a section of it called Section 230 that essentially gives broad immunity. I'm saying it in a stupid way, but it gives broad immunity. What happened at the beginning of the Internet age, there was a couple of companies, one of which did a lot of monitoring. The other one didn't at all. And the one that did monitoring got into trouble because they were monitoring. And then people these on these platforms, people said libelous things and things like that. And so... It was designed to allow these third-party platforms, these platforms, not third-party platforms, to be able to not be liable for things third parties did on their platforms. They were benign platforms. And it sort of treated them a little like the phone company, I guess, except they're not. They're not like the phone companies. And so one of the things that these companies call themselves is platagers, which they're platforms and publishers. So they're not media, but they're not benign, like a, like a phone company kind of thing. And so that's the difficulty. And so it was meant to protect them from being sued out of existence at the, at the nascency of the internet age. Well, now they're the most powerful companies in the world and they're totally protected from any liability on most things that have to do with it. And in some cases, that's a good thing. And in other cases, why can't they be sued for certain behaviors that they do? Um, and that's that. That's I think where we are right now. And they're trying to figure out how to, you know, Donald Trump put an executive order, you know, essentially written by his kindergarten lawyer, whoever that was, um, that was just like, let's get rid of it. Like you can't do that because it, it would it would put these businesses out of business in seconds. Like a lot of this stuff, you have to reform it. You have to figure out what the new rules of the road are going forward uh, in terms of liability. And you know, again, we act like we can't do something that's sophisticated and nuanced, and we certainly can. Like what is the way forward to create a, a, a way to protect these platforms, but at the same time, allow people justifiably to be able to sue them if if they, if they did things, you know, if they created an app that caused something and they didn't monitor it, just like you would a cigarette company or a, or a tire. We can sue about tires. We can sue about brakes falling out. These apps are just, they're digital, but they're the same things. They're, they're like versions of bad brakes. And so why not be able to at least target them in some way. And so that's what's being discussed right now, but we'll see. 
Going back to antitrust, we have another question from uh, our high information audience. I love it. Senator Klobuchar recently introduced a bill that would significantly expand antitrust enforcement authority to discourage large firms such as Facebook or Amazon from engaging in exclusionary conduct or acquiring nascent competitors. Do you see legislation of this type getting adopted this term? And if so, would it have a meaningful impact for high tech firms? I'm not sure. I haven't studied it enough, but I have her book. I have, I'm going to read it this weekend. She just wrote a book on it. It's called Antitrust from the Gilded Age. It's enormous. It's that big fat book back here. Um, um, she's, she's, I'm going to interview her about it soon. Um, so I, I can't, I, I have to say I haven't read everything she's written about it. Um, I think, th- 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 I don't know. I, I think possibly that they could start to pass some of this legislation. She's had, she's been a, in the forefront of a lot of this stuff. Like I, I, she had the Honest Ads Act, I think, and some others. Um, she's really been at the, at the forefront of a lot of these. And obviously she's a lawyer and, and the question is, and I think the question is where, where are we going to apply beyond what, Senator Klobuchar is saying is, what is antitrust going forward? What is, the, that's the idea, you know, I talked to Lena Khan who worked on the House subcommittee when they were doing some of those hearings. She's now, where did she just go? She just went somewhere big. Um, she might be an, F, she might be an FTC commissioner. She's, her name's being bandied about for that. And so the idea of what antitrust is has to be reformed, I think, absolutely correctly. And that's one of the things that Senator Klobuchar, I believe is discussing in this book which I have not read. So I'm not going to say things I don't know. Um, so I think uh, passing this this year, I don't know. I don't, maybe not so much. I think they've got a lot of other things to do around COVID, around impeachment right now. They've got, there's a lot of other things. I don't think it's high on the, on the list at this moment, but I do think there will be significant data privacy legislation passed within the next year or two. And this is long time coming. Um, around antitrust and Senate Protection 230, it's a much more complex issue. So I think it's going to take longer um, mm-hmm. and it should, it should take longer to do it. Um, there is the window, this political window, of course, if we get another election where the House and Senate are odds, um, you're going to have a problem. But um, I do think there is bipartisan feelings um, around this. If the Republicans can stop uh, Spit, you know, spinning their wheels on the conservative bias thing, which is just a, a feint by most of them, um, they could really get to something together because it's really about power um, versus any but, but bias. Bias has nothing to do with it. It's all about power of these companies. And it, if you solve the power problem, you solve the bias, any perceived bias problem. It doesn't exist, by the way. Um, study after study after study shows it. They just say it. They, it's like they just keep like election fraud, election fraud, election fraud. It's not true. Um, but they keep saying bias, bias, bias. It's not true. It's actually not true. So I, we'll see. We'll see. Uh, that's a long way of saying we'll see. I do think privacy and, and uh, maybe some cyber defense stuff is going to pass first before that because it's a lot easier than this complex topic. We, we have a question on that as well. And I know you've written about this recently. Mm-hmm. Is our government prepared to face global cyber threats? No. No, yes. Yes and no. Uh, I just did a really good interview with Brad Smith about this and also Nicole Perlroth, who wrote a great book. If you want to, it's over there. I wish I could show it to you, but I have all the books. Um, It's called This is How They Tell Me the World Ends. It's terrifying. Read it. I I suggest and listen to Nicole talk to me about it. Her feeling was that there was a lot of mistakes made many, many years ago in the in the in the U.S. in the U.S. about a number of things, including doing Stuxnet. Uh, doing those attacks um, sort of opened up the the Pandora's box of other countries using these 
we were the first to start to really use them in an aggressive ma manner. And the other is creating a gray market for cyber weapons. So we're sort of responsible for the attacks that are on us right now. So her contention and a contention of a lot of really smart people is that we're really good on cyber attacks. We've been really quite an out, out in the forefront of them. And we're also, we haven't been paying to cyber defenses, paying attention to the defense part of it. And the problem is that we have the most stuff to steal and we have the most open open networks. And so therefore we're a, a uh, an asset rich target for a lot of these um, uh, companies. And so most people are sort of worried that that's, that SolarWinds, for example, which is an espionage hack, that's what they feel it is, um, not a financial one, um, is just the beginning of a, a very large series of attacks on the US. They, there's ransomware attacks going on, there's attacks um, on, on, on infrastructure, um, and so she, she came to the conclusion there should be a single point of cyber defense uh, in this country. Um, a lot of people don't agree with that uh, for lots of reasons, including spying on American citizens. But I think her point was this is, it's, they have the FBI looking at certain things because it's domestic. They have the NSA and other agencies looking at it. And then there's the defense department also involved in it, that there's too many points of contention and there's silo, all the information is siloed. And she compared it to 9-11. Um, where everybody had a piece of the information about what was going to happen, but they never brought them together. And she feels there should be a, a, I think I'm characterizing what she's written right, is that there needs to be a single point of cyber defense and, and that we are lacking in the ability to, you know, to understand what's, what's the incursions because they're coming in so many different ways and so many different flavors. Um, I think we, you might blame the Trump administration here because they ignored it completely. I mean, nine months not to understand there was a massive hack on so many parts of the U.S. government and so many companies. And if not for FireEye saying it happened, because a lot of companies don't like to say when they've been attacked, if not for FireEye being explicit about what happened and then Microsoft followed, nobody would have known about this. Um, uh, so, so she has all kinds of things, but yes, we are really bad in cyber defense. We're very good in cyber attacks, but it's always easier to break than it is to to protect, I guess, in, some, in, in everything in life. So you mentioned this idea of conservative bias on the social media platforms not being a real thing. We have a couple of questions about that. All right. Uh, one attendee asks, what about bringing back some version of the fairness doctrine? Oh, this is about reporting. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, but, so this question is about reporting. Fair, I to bring back the fairness doctrine. I think that's <laughs> not going to happen. It's impossible in this, in this, it's so massive. Like, how do you, how do you, the amount, it, you could monitor so many networks and so much broadcast very easily. This is non-monitorable. That's the problem is that it's so massive. There's so, like, I forget what YouTube uploads every minute, maybe Adrian, you know, but it's like some number that's so insane that it, and then there's the text and then there's all the communications. And then I just think it's not, how do you monitor it? How do you, how do you figure out how to enforce it? And I think that's, it's, there's gotta be a, a new, this is not our problem. This is, you know, this idea of bias, everybody has a voice. Everybody, the, the problem is there's too many voices is what's happening. And there's too many malevolent voices and voices intent on creating destruction and discord. And that's the problem. It's not the problem that people don't get to speak. Um, I'm always sort of saying, you know, it's so funny when you talk to some of these people who allege bias, when you get them off the record, they're like, oh, we don't believe it. We're just, it's just good for either fundraising or it's a, you know, it's a good, it gets them mad and stuff like that. And, you know, so much of it is, 
you know, you look at the bot activity, bot activity, one company can do both sides of the game and create anger. You know, that's the whole game that they're playing. Um, so I just, I, I think there's not too many voices. There's not a problem of people's voices being quashed. I think that's mm-hmm. really the opposite problem. They can so, scream all they want about it, but of course they're screaming. You know, Ted Cruz is always screaming about Ted, Josh Hawley's my favorite. I have been banned. Like he never shuts up. Like he never, he just got a new book. Con- like get a new book contract. I said that, go to, go to, go on the corner. You can yell, get on Fox news, go here. He has plenty of places to talk. He's not been tethered in any way. So I didn't have the YouTube number of minutes uploaded off the top of my head, but I just looked it up. And in 2019, they said 500 hours every minute. Every minute. Another question about current events. Um, And then I think we're getting to the end of our sweet time together. This attendee wants to know any opinion on the politically charged controversy related to Parler and their future. So Parler was the um, alternative social media app that, got a lot of users by pitching itself as Twitter with uh, without the alleged conservative bias and with less moderation. Yeah, and Parler was shut down uh, because they were hosted on Amazon and Amazon decided they had violated the terms of service. I know a lot about that because I did the interview that got him shut down. So what happened is on the, you know, I didn't, I didn't do it. He did it. He said stupid things. And then Amazon was paying attention to what he was saying. Um, the, the CEO, John uh, Mates, uh, came uh, on the day of the attack on the Capitol. You know, they had been sort of flying under the radar. People were using Parler. It was growing quite a lot and doing pretty well. People went over there because, you know, a lot of conservatives got huffy on Twitter, like to say dirty words, and then they got thrown off, and then they got huffy about it and huffed off and this and that. So they went over to Parler. And there's a lot of investment stuff going on, too. There's a lot of people making some money over there. And the, the Rebecca Mercer was one of the funders who is, you know, known for funding all kinds of right-wing stuff. So uh, so I interviewed, so I called, the, I'd been trying to get the Parler CEO on my show for a while. And on the day of the Capitol attacks my team immediately got him on the show which was great it was a great person to talk about because a lot of the organization by the way most of the organization was on facebook and other places but parlor was an active place where a lot of people were organizing along with me we and a bunch of other yellow or something but anyway there's there's another one it's not trello because that's and that's to do your projects um uh so uh so anyway they were so he came on the show and i i interviewed him about about what they were doing from a content moderation point of view and dealing with seditious stuff that was on there and dangerous stuff. And he had very bad answers. All of them were bad, I think. And he didn't, uh, he, he just, and he essentially said, I don't take any responsibility if they organize the attack uh, on my platform. I don't, he essentially said, I don't care. Fine. They can, you know, they can organize it in my place. And I'm good with it. And if we don't get to it, so what? He had a real attitude that was, I was almost like, read the room, sir. There's people attacking the Capitol. You might want to have a little more concern about our body politic, but he didn't. And after that interview, you know, I think I didn't do anything but give him, a give him, he said what he thought. He said what he was doing. He said what he, what was happening. So after that interview published, people were highly emotional. And also he said so many stupid things all at once in one place. They, the, the tech companies really had no choice. They had already been engaged with Parler on these issues on, because they have certain rules of the road. 
And um, and I think the interview just set it off what what they already were concerned about, which was was misbehavior of the platform, and they're they're on their platforms, and so they do have rules around apps and behaviors and all kinds of rules that they can pull at any time. And the question is enforcement. And so after that interview, I think they had no choice but to enforce. Right? It was like this guy is actively saying, "I don't care if people are doing." illegal things on my platform. And so they had no choice. So first thing was Amazon pulled, uh, no, a Apple and Google pulled them from the app store. Um, I think, uh, and then Amazon acted and then all kinds of Okta, all these different things acted. There's so many elements to a, an app, all their vendors pulled out. And that's not unlike, you know, it happens all the time in the physical world if someone does something and all the vendors pull out. And so they claimed antitrust with, with Amazon. Problem is the cloud business is really competitive and nobody wanted to take their business. Nobody wanted to be, you know, whether it was, it was, it was, it was Apple or Google or Amazon, nobody wanted to be a facilitator for terrorists. That's really what it was. And so they came off and uh, he probably shouldn't have done the interview with me, uh, but he told the truth about, he told his truth and they just didn't like what he had to say. And, and, uh, and again, it was already in the works and he kind of pushed him over the edge and that was that. So I don't know what to say. He, 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 he wasn't running his platform the way they wanted to. And he shoved it in their face and they knocked him off. That's really what happened. And they had every right to, by the way, they had every single right to. So, you know, build your own platform, build your own app store. I don't know what to tell you. Like, <laughs> build your own cloud infrastructure. Whatever. They can. They're, they're offline still, I think. They're still offline. They missed a real opportunity because everyone ran over to Signal and, uh, and uh, other places. Well, this was a very enriching, enlightening conversation. Thank you so much, Kara. Thank you to the very engaged participants. I'm sorry we couldn't get to everyone's questions, but I did put links to both of Kara's podcasts in the chat. I highly recommend them. And if you subscribe to them, you may hear Kara talk about the issue that you wanted answered that we didn't get to. Yeah. So thanks so much again, everyone. Kara, do you have any closing thoughts? Well, I'm looking at these questions. These are fantastic questions of all, all the things. And I think what we're talking about is how do we conduct ourselves as society and, and behaviors. And the problem that we have is that a lot of our behaviors are now the decision-making about these behaviors are in the hands of different people. Like two, two people made the decision about removing Donald Trump, Jack Dorsey and, and Mark Zuckerberg. And Mark then now tried to put it off onto the Facebook oversight board. Um, but, uh, but that's that they, you may think they made a great decision. And I think they did. He, he broke their rules almost continually. He was like the, the biggest troller of, of all time. And he continually broke their rules and tried to force them into banning him. Essentially, that's what he was doing. Um, and they made the right decision, but is it right for two people to make a decision? Why did it take, that's the issue we have. So we've got a problem that you, if they're making the right decisions, that's great. Do they always make the right decisions? And so we're sort of in a real pickle in terms of what we're going to do. And you mentioned Bob, Bob, Robert Kennedy here and his ridiculous, appalling anti-vax stuff. Um, you know, one service takes them off, the other doesn't. That's what, that's the situation we're in. Is that that's where that's where we are? Is that there are no people have alternatives to go to. And so um, Instagram removed his account. Facebook hasn't. Why the inconsistency? just because and it has an impact on our society so we have to figure out how to how to do that well you can do it through taxing social media taxing maybe just like we do with sugar or gas or things like that um, but we have to really start to think about these things because we cannot have these one-offs happen over and over and over again 
Um, I don't think, Don I think Donald Trump is a, um, is an unusual case. I don't think there's going to be a lot more. There's not going to have 10, there's not going to be 50 decisions we have to make here of people like him. But the fact that it came down to two people, even if they made the right decision, is problematic going forward. So we have to think about what that means. Great. Well, thank you so much again, Kara. Again, you can find Kara all over Apple's podcast store, wherever you get your podcasts, and in the pages of the New York Times. Thanks, everyone, so much for doing thank this. You. Bye.